I'm really excited this week to be joined by Nimco Ali Ogley. Nimco is someone I've known for, for a while, actually, um, a smiley British social activist and writer. And I think importantly, in terms of where our paths cross Nimco, you co-founded the Daughters of Eve back in 2010, which really was focused on your campaigning on FGM. Um, but of course, in a sense, you've done so much more since that moment. Um, but probably it's a good time to sort of ask you, in a sense, what the trigger was for starting that campaigning work on, on it, with Daughters of Eve back in 2010. It's, it's kind of easy to, you know, I know what it's like before I really got involved in politics. You feel passionate about something. But then there's that moment when you go from feeling really passionate about something to thinking I'm going to do something more serious on this and I'm going to be a voice what was that trigger for you um yeah thank you for having me on and it's yeah it's like it, it's great to connect um again that trigger for me so I'm a survivor of um female genital mutilation um myself and I am one of the only people who's actually kind of lived in this country prior to FGM and after and it was it was this and I and, and growing up I knew people talked about FGM and I knew there was some concern about it but there was very little engagement from strategic and um, statutory bodies around my well-being and my protection and it was I think it was just at the birth the, the birth of my niece um, in 2011 when I just looked at her and I just thought I really do want her I really do want her to be part of society I want her to be protected so being like you know I'm told I'm British every day but at the same time growing up I was never made to feel that way ironically through um and through 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 a progressive lens of actually trying to project an identity and a culture that i'd never really chosen to be born into but yet at the same time i was very proud of but yet it kind mm -hmm. of denied me the same kind of level of equality that i wanted in this country so it was a personal it was basically a personal protection for my niece and for girls like her to um be protected from fgm and also to be able to get justice if they were failed and it sounds to me like, you know, as you say, you you also had a sense of being able to be a really credible, unique voice on something that, you know, many other people probably wouldn't understand and, and wouldn't necessarily know where to start in terms of how to engage with, with the issues around FGM, presumably. Yeah, so, so my FGM happened really out of context in the sense that um, even though it was like, you know, it was a, it was, it, it was an act that both my mother and, and my grandmother were complicit in, they also did not um, force the other kind of gender stereotypes and gender conditioning that girls in my community um, face. So I was able to have the space in order to read about FGM and really like, you know, sit with it and understanding that it was a form of violence against women and girls and how little power that my parents, that my mother specifically had over the ability for me to be cut or not cut and um with with the death of Noel Adesalawi um this week it was her book um that really gave me the understanding that this was something that kind of bond women together in a way of collectively trying to protect women and um, protect their daughters but without really um understanding that it also kind of um was trying to build a fear into them about what what, what what being a woman was or what being a woman is. So yeah, so I had, I'd, I'd come to a space of um, campaigning after almost like 10 to 20 years of really sitting with my own experience and thinking about it. And I think, you know, this sense of needing to change what was what was a social norm as, as, as much as anything else, you know, just, just in the sense, what was expected and almost rewiring that social norm, I guess that's what you were 
raising the issue of was how do you take something that's as it were always been one way and then put it into a different way yeah no definitely and also understanding that change is um possible but it's not inevitable unless we give women opportunities and spaces i mean i went i i under um when fgm as a seven-year-old and coming back into this country it definitely wasn't illegal to take a child out of the country at the time but there was myriads of opportunities for um, state institutions to intervene from education to healthcare to social care in order to be able to make sure that my well-being was a, was a priority but it was really interesting there's this kind of um, weird racism that kind of um, permeates through um, ethnic minority communities and the way that they engage with state institutions it's the fact that that there was this notion that FGM was happening through ignorance and people didn't know better. Everybody that was complicit and actively coerced, um, um, actively involved in FGM in the in 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 the UK, like you know, as I was growing up, was very much aware of the law, but they were also very much aware of, of the fact that they could kind of play this balance of like you know playing the ignorant immigrant to um, to a lot of well-meaning progressive white people. And growing up, that kind of really informed me of my position in this country and my position in terms of in 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 context with power in the sense that I was seen as some kind of fragile thing to protect but they really did not want to protect me beyond the space of actually interfering with the understanding of what was really happening in my life so yeah it was a really interesting space that I came from in terms of my activism which I made more political which was mine was focused on political change because it is state institutions that care for children it is not about talking about to community members in a country and saying, well, you shouldn't be doing FGM. It's actually about using legislation and the state, um, the state's ability to protect children in order for those protections to really happen. And I think it's really interesting because it was probably around, I would say 2012, maybe 2013, when I, as a local MP at that stage, um, but also development secretary, really started becoming more aware of, of FGM as, a, as an issue um, and, and also having a real awareness that it affected people in my own constituency in London. But then I think from a, a development secretary perspective, beginning to start to understand how if I was really pushing on girls and women's empowerment, it fitted into holding all of that back. In other words, we were doing all of this work on education, but actually you know, it was one of the things that was then meaning that we didn't get the impact that we wanted for those for those girls and they didn't get the impact that they wanted for their own lives. So, and it was part and parcel, of course, of child marriage. Um, and so I think it's interesting when, it, when I look back at my own kind of steady awareness, it came from people like you obviously campaigning. It came from, I think, papers like the Evening Standard, which probably were maybe one of the first to really start just writing articles about it that yeah. I think made lots more people just learn about what was going on. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think it was taking that personal um, um, position, especially from the Evening Standard, having Sarah Sands as the editor. I think mm -hmm. women in, in certain positions kind of like understand and they can really empathise um, and do that. Yeah, and it's so the, like, you know, the act of FGM has always been understood um, when I was growing up as one thing that happened and then and then okay let's focus on other things but it is actually the, the principal indicator of other forms of um, gender-based violence where FGM is present 
the value of a girl. So FGM is an investment in an asset, which is the girl. So girls are not seen, especially in Africa, um, as, equal, um, as equal to boys, and they're not seen as citizens or as part of the GDP of a country. So basically, the only security that they have is for them to be married off. So you pay for FGM and, and, you, and, and you seek out FGM in order to add um, to, add to your um, assets. And then what happens is things like education, all these things are just like, you know, tag-ons, if they can be bothered. Otherwise, your main source is to be a cut woman that is to be able to be sold for more cattle, for more land and all these things. And because I was outside of the space of the fact that I could be economically empowered and educated here in the West, I could articulate that and really understand that the impact of FGM wasn't necessarily just this one act through ignorance, but it was an act of actually really stabilizing my role as a woman and that was happening at a vast scale scale in Africa so we had obviously you have um, FGM early forced marriage multiple pregnancies and and then and then basically when girls are widowed off become widows because they're married to older men then they're remarried so there's this constant um um like you know oppression of women and we kept on looking at fgm as a health issue i think i think the biggest mistake that was made was actually placing fgm within the world health organization is when you talk about health you 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 talk about a way of mitigating those things as opposed to something that's a um a human rights um violation which something is that you end and you try to prevent all the time i think i think that's absolutely spot on I, i think you're right that we had seen it really through the lens of of a health problem um whereas from my perspective i i came at it from an education perspective in the sense that i was looking at why we were getting you know little girls into primary school and then they were going into secondary school but then actually they weren't finishing Mm. and they weren't finishing because they were being married off far too young and they weren't finishing because of you know FGM as part of that and so I I suppose for me I, my kind of journey on this was was maybe a different one because of, of what we were doing in DFID but I do remember just getting to the stage where I just felt that there was broader knowledge within the political system and you just needed to get it to the top of the agenda for long enough to get some action taken on it and so we ended up as you probably remember, doing that girls' summit, I yep. think it was 2014, and 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 I felt that was just really important for the UK as a development actor to say to a wider world, a wider development community that we saw this as really important, and and we were going to try and, you know, support this momentum that was growing to take action. But I remember then within the di- within Diffid, then Diffid saying how maybe we should just reach out to Theresa May and Home Office and maybe this was a chance to get some action taken domestically, which again, I think is probably where our our paths kind of crossed again at that stage because it it started to open up the chance to, you know, have some of the the, the Home Office work um, that that hopefully has started to make a difference. But I'm I'm gonna guess you'll, you'll kind of give me your sense about whether we made enough progress after the Girls' Summit or not. No, no, I think I think we definitely did. So it is that whole combination of acting globally and thinking. Um, so thinking globally and acting locally. And we have like girls are safer than they've ever been um, from FGM here in the UK. And women are also being able to access the um, healthcare that they need. And it's actually quite interesting the fact that we've been so successful in terms of um, tackling FGM that people that survive on 
constantly campaigning against FGM from a community st st standpoint, think we're doing too much in terms of um, surveillance and protecting girls. So I think it's incredible. Tell me a little bit more about that, Nimco. That actually it feels a bit intrusive almost at this stage. But, yeah, but it's actually it's not intrusive. So it's really interesting because the whole the whole point is that um, FGM, like you know, you can't like so race, gender, and other kind of um, it's 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 specific things do feed into certain forms of gender-based violence. So FGM is predominantly common to women from the African continent and 40% um, of all the women in the UK living with FGM. So there's about 137,000, 40% of those are Somali. So if you are over the age of 25, you possibly have had FGM. So there is nothing wrong with the government, like, you know, on that basis, assuming that if you have a daughter, we should have a conversation with you about FGM and actually seek to support you. I think what what's missing at the moment is like seeking to support women in order to be able to, not only are you going to have a child in a country that is not yours for the first time, but you're also going to be able to having to raise it in a different way, which you weren't raised. So I think there needs to be support for um, young um, women from certain ethnic minority communities to be able to talk about the struggles of what it is to be a mother and the struggles of what it is to be a mother in in the diaspora that I, I you know I completely um support that I think that's something that um Matt Hancock and others can um, really lean into but there's this problem again which um which ironically was what was going on when I was growing up is the fact that it's racist to ask people about FGM because it's their culture and you can't assume that they're doing FGM we know you're doing FGM because that is the kind of cultural like there's evidence that there's FGM within that family so the intrusiveness is not from a position of actually racially profiling in order to oppress you but it's about racially profiling or looking at an issue in order to protect children who are citizens of this country so for the first time Somali girls or South um, or Sierra Leonean girls or girls from FGM practicing communities are actually seen as British citizens and, and, and the state cares enough to ask questions in in the 90s when my friends and I were being like my friends were being taken out of this country to be cut nobody cared enough to see us as 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 as, um, as British we were seen as Somali first and it was the same for South Asian girls that was being seen as either Bangladeshi or Pakistani that were being taken out to um, Pakistan or Bangladesh and to be forcibly married so the offense is coming from a place of actually um, there might be some assimilation for the first time in this country. Other European countries have, have always asked for assimilation and said that if children are born in this country, then they're being seen and being given the same rights as other children that have um, that are born in this country. So, yeah, I find it, um, actually, I find it more offensive that we give energy to, to these people that are complaining that we care about children mm -hmm. rather than um like you know like I, I, I don't know i just think it's completely non nonsensical we have we have registers for people that are domestic abusers um and if they go into a family with children and that's like basically put on the record if you've got like if there's a pedophile so like you know child protection services exist for a reason and we live in a country where children are seem to be protected by by the state as much as they are by their families and it is about human rights isn't it um it basically, fundamentally it's about the human rights of young girls who are growing up here and exactly. are fundamentally british and it kind of starts and stops there ultimately doesn't it Exactly. And it's really actually kind of strange that my former university of Bristol would publish um, like, you know, uh, research into communities like my community, the Somali community saying they feel like they're being targeted or being vilified because they've had like, you know, because, because um, about FGM 
if the evidence is there, we follow the evidence. So like the next generation of girls who are now probably in their 20s or younger, when they become mothers, nobody's going to ask them about FGM because they won't have FGM and there'll be no evidence of that. So this is literally just trying to prevent um, a human right violation, as, as you said, and also a public health crisis. So we, we have same kind of vigilance and surveillance for women who are pregnant and they're and 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 and, and they're vegans there's 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 like you know surveillance on the fact to make sure that they get enough vitamin d of all the things that they need so this is like you know rather looking at it as a bad thing i should look at it as a support system that the state is finally given to um ethnic minority women who have been left for um decades without any support around fgm yeah and then over time you know with each generation hopefully you know that social norm gets changed and but fundamentally it's about women's empowerment isn't it and girls empowerment from the word go yeah um, no definitely no definitely it is Sorry, go on, okay. I was going to say, no, it definitely is. And I would actually just come back to that um, point that, that, that you made about education. It is actually, I don't think education is, 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 is the key element to end in FGM. It's the key element is economic empowerment and economic justice. The, the reason why I can sit here today and say, I will never cut my daughter or I don't actually see FGM in my life or existing beyond FGM in the, in the sense that I am is the fact that I'm a woman that's able to be um, is able to work, able to bank her own money, and, and also able to control her own finances. That solemn happens on the continent of Africa. And even when it comes to about educating girls, unless we're creating industries and jobs for them to go yeah. into, then we're basically actually just creating a black hole in the sense that we're, we're taking girls out of the marriage market and making them considered as burdens to their families and then just bringing them back with, no, with nowhere for them to go to. I think what we need to be doing is actually like you know setting up um industries and jobs for women so they can keep their girls in school because as soon as you're able to control the money in your pocket then that gives you choices and the first choice you make is how you want to live your life and how you want to raise your kids that is the key thing to actual real choice and um african women are not given that and the five foundation which um i set up in 2015 ultimately starts off about funding women at a local level in order to be able to lobby for change, but also be able to fight to get economic justice for themselves. So tell me a little, let's talk a little bit about the international perspective, because I think you're right. One of the challenges is it, it's not uncomplicated yeah. finding solutions on this. Half of it is around empowering women through education, but half of it is around them then being able to use that talent to be independent and you need both in place really if you're really gonna make a, a big big difference on all of this so just in terms of the five foundation i mean obviously when we were looking at this part of what we were trying to do through the girl summit was to get that wider international push in different countries were in different places what's your sense of the progress we've we've been making but also how much further is there to go on all of this I think I think the greatest progress that we can say that from the Girls Summit and the DFID um, investment is that there is actually a real conversation around the issue and there is a real tangibility of us ending FGM by 2030. The reality is that the 70 million girls at risk of FGM between now and 2030 haven't even been born yet. They, they're going to be born to adolescent girls who are out of school right now. So that's those are the girls we need to find jobs for. Mm -hmm. And then their younger siblings, we need to be able to keep them in school. But changing the value of girls is the real thing. 
women and girls in on the continent of Africa at the moment are only seen um, as wives and as mothers. They're not seen as um, citizens and as part of the GDP. So when we talk about things like poverty, gender never really comes into it. And I, the reason why we, um, so so basically I've been trying since 2017 to try to get large NGOs and um, and DFID itself in order to start actually really investing in women directly. And we ended up setting the, um, the, the, the five foundation as the caveat to kind of start to advocate um, for that on a larger um, like, you know, platform. But ultimately I was sitting there in, in 2018 um, listening to um, Bill, um, Bill and Melinda Gates at one of the events in, in New York. And he talked about where poverty was gonna triple or double in, in the next 30 years. And poverty is something that is actually created. It doesn't just happen. It's not a disease, it's not a virus. It doesn't, it's, it's, it's not waterborne. You have to legitimately put in things in place in order for that to really happen and for that to breathe. And the key fundamental thing to that is gender inequality. So if you are, subjecting 50% of your GDP to FGM, having them married off and having them not educated, then you're definitely not gonna be able to end poverty because 50, the, the other 50% who are men, are not going to be able to not going to be able to do 100% of the whole of the program. So it's about really getting to African leaders and saying equality is not just about caring about women, but it's also about caring about your own bottom line. If we are going to end poverty in Africa, we have to be able to give women the same um, access to money, same access to education, same access to protection as um, as like you know as men. And that's a similar conversation that we can we can have in in this country in the sense that we understand ending violence against women and girls actually has a has an economic impact on us all nimco it's a really interesting um question about if you like how intersectionality happens for example between race and then class what's your sense about how those two relate or don't relate um i really think that this country is a class-based country more than it is about racism and race. And I, I always find that really uncomfortable when people talk about all oh, this country being racist, when I've traveled as a black woman across many European countries and um, the world. Um, the, the reality is that most ethnic minorities live in white working class communities, live in areas where, where white working class communities have um, lived for um, decades. So the deprivation and the social um, issues that they face actually come from a class structural issue rather than a race issue. I, and I was having this conversation with my auntie in Bristol. Everybody would talk about Bristol as a diverse city. It is diverse, but it's the least integrated city that you all come across. So I talked, but, but, but I said to her, if you took yourself as a Somali woman to this part of Bristol, your like you know your educational attainments, everything else will 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 go up because you will be moving out of a white um, a working class community into an aspirational community, and that again also kind of sits in terms of the politics of um, this country. I think there's there's going to be a bit of a reckoning in the sense that. Um, and you, and, you, and you can also actually see that in in the makeup of the um, of the um, Conservative Party, all 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 the Conservative members of colour were all from Africa, like all the black um, until um, 2019 when you got the first African Caribbean, because of the whole difference between like you know you bring privilege with you. So as African as an African woman, I could I could um, rise from being the child of a refugee that had nothing to be able to be. A government advisor within one generation and all my siblings and little cousins have all gone to 
um, Russell Group universities, but that's because the privileges that my parents carried with them and the aspirations that they had for us from coming back coming from Africa could not be taken away, even though we were living in um, white working class communities. But the same children that I grew up with, I see now who are having who had children in their um, teens and are still living in like you know in poverty in this country. So I think when we need to start looking at leveling up in this country, we have to start looking at class rather than just actually making it a race issue. And in that comes into the conversation about African Caribbean boys who are mostly likely to be born to white working class mothers from African Caribbean um, fathers, and then that's where the deprivation and the poverty kind of always like you know intermixes but very few people are able to have those conversations if um in terms of social mobility in this country at the moment and so let's let's talk a little bit about that because a lot of the work nimka that i've been doing around leveling up and social mobility we've really tried to deliver that in a sense through business through universities and the education system and in a way outside of government. So I suppose what I've been saying to these companies and the universities is actually you don't need a government minister to pass a law or set up a program. This is about how you act as organizations and, and doing the right things. I was really interested to get your take on where businesses in, and for example, universities in a wider education system say here in the UK fit into this bigger picture you just talked about, not just FBF, FGM, but as you said, economic empowerment, you know, the, the sense of, of tackling violence against women and girls. What's what's the bigger picture, if you like, on, on these other actors that can make such a big difference on it for you? Yeah, so I I definitely do think that government does have the have the basic role to play because they are the foundation upon which the norms of a society are based on. So we do actually need better legislation. So for example, um, on street sexual harassment, um, like really being able to understand what like um, the um, rape and sexual behavior and, 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 and predatory behavior, all those things being defined by law, but then businesses need to take those things on board. I was, um, and, and then business also really need to understand like, you know, what, what impact fear and the fear of crime actually has on their employees. So creating that safe space and having those um, conversations and taking lessons from what government makes illegal and really actually educating people about that. I was talking to somebody the other day and I said 50% of the UK's population lives a completely different reality to the other 50% because we're women. Um, when we're walking down the street, it's actually, we're constantly scared, like, you know, of, of like, you know, of what's going to happen to us. And that fear corrodes you the quality of your lived experiences. And that's gonna fundamentally impact how you, um, like, you know, how you deliver at work, how you deliver at your, your university. So it is kind of like a chicken and egg kind of thing. The government has to do the work in order to legislate against things. And then the real work and the real change and the ability to create a functioning social contract has to be done by the living instruments that work on a day-to-day -day basis. So. I, you know, not just doing a, um, a seminar on sexual harassment, but really understanding what sexual harassment means and really making that part of the culture of, a, um, of, of, of the company. And the same for university. I was thinking back to my days at university, it, it was 2005, um, 2005. It seems not that long ago to me, but I was given a rape alarm. Mm -hmm. so, so I was told, well, you're probably gonna get raped and if you do like have, like, you know, have this thing and pull it out. And I thought, like thinking about that, there was a duty of responsibility that the university had for me and a duty of care that they actually negated by saying, well, this is going to happen. So let's just try to, like, you know, make you feel a little bit safe about it or other people can come and actually negate, um, 
negate it happening. Today, we are teaching young boys like, you know, that like, you know, that consent is fundamental to any sexual engagement and that, the, that like, you know, that the way that they behave to women, if it's like threatening or harassment is unacceptable. So, yeah, in, in a in a, in a roundabout way, you might not lead, um, you might not need one MP to stand up and say something, but we do really need government to set the pulse on these conversations. And then we have to make sure that it's actually flowing um, um, through society. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's spot on. And I remember whilst I was Secretary of State for Education, we took the decision that we would finally update relationships and sex education. Um, which I just felt was crucial if you were really going to help our young people come out of the education system as adults that could be, you know, functioning members of a, of a society that didn't expect violence against women and girls as a norm. And I think that the, there are many, many businesses out there that are, I think can and will and, and are prepared to play a role in making sure that, if you like, how they conduct themselves backs up that overall message and I think it's probably starts with just having a very open culture where people can raise issues very openly and get them you know get them credibly dealt with yeah no definitely and it starts with like believing um believing women and I know there's this conversation of people say like not all men and we know it's not all men but all like every woman has a story and it's about men calling out these kind of things that, that are that are completely um, um, um unacceptable I think we know when something is unacceptable we know when something is going too far but we just think okay like, let's not really be let's not really like you know rock the boat we have to rock the boat sometimes in order for change to um really happen and I know that as an activist it's like you can, so I always say my kind of quote is that I said I'm a campaigner not a complainer I can sit around all day and actually think about things I can complain about but there are things that we can strategically really change and the way we have conversations with each other and the way that we um, interact with each other as men and women is very much key to that there are things that kind of seeping through society which is actually then like, basically they corrode everything else so for me I would like for example there are um silly little things that happen I so I was I wrote to um the council in um in I think it must be Westminster if it's Soho but I wrote to the council because I thought they they they, they put out these um like you know temporary urinals out on a Friday and, and and Saturday night and I said not only were they unsightly but also women are walking around with women having their uh, with men having their organs out mm-hmm. and um the reply I got back was the fact that this was made because of the fact that men were urinating against businesses and businesses complained. And I just thought, well, then arrest them. It's a public order offense. Like, like, like women are needed to go to the toilet every single day on a night out as well, but they don't urinate against. So there's this really weird thing of rather than actually um, fixing an issue and saying, well, it's unacceptable. So we're going to actually really come down on it. We seem to be actually making excuses for men so it's those kind of blind spots that we need to be able to call out that a council thought actually the best way to negate um men urinating against um like properties was to put out like you know temporary urinals which like exposed women to basically partially dressed men i just think on what i'm thinking what was the blind spot in that conversation and that was there probably was somebody that was uncomfortable with it, but just didn't speak up and could have spoken up. But it had to be me, who doesn't even live in Soho, saying, are you actually like, I was walking home with my niece from the cinema. It was only eight o'clock and there was a man, like, you know, legally urinating into something which was unacceptable. 
And you ask about, or you, you mentioned the blind spot. I'm, and, and really this also brings you on to, you know, women in representation, in parliament, in councils. And, you know, part of the, the challenge on this is if you're in very male dominated organizations and that can include politics, then, you know, men's decisions on what the right appropriate solution to that problem is, you know, are going to be different on occasion to what we'd have thought was appropriate. And, and it kind of all ties after a while back to sort of this wider women's empowerment and that actually it's about removing the barriers. But then, you know, the final piece is just to have the decision making much more balanced in the first place, I feel. No, no, definitely. I agree with you because women will bring um, a complete different narrative into the conversation is the fact that we have different experiences. So whether it's like even if we haven't had children, we probably understand the idea of child rearing. We, we understand things like, you know, having to um, menstruate. So there are like complete different experiences. Just when we say about class and everything else, I think gender is the kind of a key specific thing around that table. And as much as like people want to start going about saying like, you know, um, we, we should like, you know, gender is this and gender is that we are, there are two, like there are essentially a majority, the, 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 the majority of the world is, um, has two, like, you know, has two sexes. And that's what we just, we need to be able to have those conversations and say, actually as a woman, you would look at something completely differently, just as if you would, if you were disabled, so all these other kind of things. So I think our lived experiences does inform um, the decisions that we make on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, we've got about five minutes left in this podcast, and I did want to ask you about what's next for you, because obviously you have your role advising the Home Secretary on tackling violence against women and girls. But perhaps what our listeners may not know is you are about to start your own LBC podcast. <laughs> so branching out, common ground. Tell us a little bit about what you're going to be doing on the podcast and, yes. you know, your first interview, all of that. I want to, I want to hear kind of almost what's next for, for you now, Nimco. Yeah, um, it's honestly, it's been a, it's been a, um, a long time coming because I have had such a, a unique kind of upbringing. I'm like, no, I'm black, I'm Muslim, I'm woman, I'm a centrist. Um, I became, I was a child refugee, I survived all these things. And that has given me the ability to never really see things in black and white and also always kind of live in this gray space of just trying to understand people, or just always trying to see the wood for the trees, um, as it were. And that, that's the things I've, I've always been able to find common ground with people. It's like the whole point is politically when you're voting or when you're dating somebody that's completely different you have to kind of choose one or the other but I think on a day-to-day -day basis in order to advocate for a greater world I think meeting in the middle is where things really happen and it's always been easier for me to cross over and meet people in the middle than them for them to kind of cross over and meet me in the middle because people like you know you sit in a position either even if you're privileged or you're not privileged you always are sitting in a position of fear of losing the power that you've had and I've lost everything several times as a child um, and then as an adolescent so I've never really been fear of like uh, really hitting rock bottom because I have kind of I have faith that there'll be something there um maybe that maybe actually that view is, is a privileged one as well but ultimately so, so my so, so my first guest um is Priti Patel the home secretary and the reason why I wanted to talk to her and actually I want to talk to a lot of like you know conservative people of color is the fact that there's just this again this massive misconception of who they are 
ironically coming from people who are not of color expecting you to act in a certain way and the thing that um really stood out for me for with pretty and many other cabinet ministers who are of color is that on on 2019 on election night i was in a room with them and i and i and i mentioned a racial slur that was um that was said to me and I said it in jest because I just thought like whatever but the pain in their faces reminded me that these young like these like men and women grew up in this country in a time when the racism that sometimes I get on on on, on, on social media and stuff was, was actually part of their lived experiences the struggles that women like Priti Patel who are in the positions of power they had James Cleverly, Saj, everybody else is things that I will never understand and I think it's something that I really wanted to find out about her lived experience, her kind of who she is and and the position that she's got to, and also what it's like to be a woman in those kind of places. And just give her the opportunity to be able to um, speak for herself rather than to be this caricature that everybody wants her to be. So, yeah, and hopefully the next guest that I'm I'm going to have is um, David Bedell, who has just written an in incredible book called um, called Jews Don't Count, which again is the same kind of this blind spot that progressive have to the racism that they perpetuate so yeah it's um i think if, if i can if i can help change the world um, one conversation at a time and bring us all closer together that will be um a great next step for me <laughs> no mean objective uh, that's fantastic nimco it's been an absolute pleasure having you do the podcast thanks so much for coming on and i'm sure that people listening to it will have found it absolutely fascinating so many many thanks Thank you for having me. Thank you very much.